Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. And just real quick, I want to say thank you to all my regular listeners that have uh, very patiently waited for me to get episodes out. I know that to describe my schedule here lately as sparse and erratic would probably be a little bit generous. Uh, but if you've been listening to my show, you know that you know, we we lost the house that we were renting in and we have not been able to find another house to uh, purchase and we've been living in our camper uh, but we do want to get out of pennsylvania and i've got some good news it looks like things are starting to point in the right direction i believe that we've got a little clear idea of where we're going to wind up and when we're going to be there so hopefully another month or two of this i will be settled and can actually devote a little bit more time to these shows try to get them out a little a little more regularly uh, but my you know, my downloads have remained pretty constant, and I appreciate that. I thank you for being patient. I I know that it's just spotty as to when I get these episodes out, and to my new listeners, and I have picked up a few over the past couple of months, uh, thank you for your patience. I assure you this is not the schedule that I have aspired to when I started doing a podcast, uh, but hopefully soon everything will be calmed down a little bit. I'll be a little more settled, and we can get back to getting these episodes out a little more regularly. Uh, But thank you again. Uh, That's not what I wanted to talk about today, but I thought I'd throw that in. Uh, What I want to talk about is an episode from the founding of this country that we all are very much aware of. In fact, if you're like me, when you were in middle school, you had to memorize the first opening stanzas of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. And we all know that story. Paul Revere had worked with Robert Newman, the sextant of the Christ Church in Boston's North End, to keep an eye out on the British regular troops movement and to signal him whether they were going to march by land across the Boston Neck or if they were going to go, quote unquote, by sea and hang two lanterns if by sea and one if by land. And on the evening of April the 18th, Robert Newman hung two lamps in the steeple of the old North Church and Paul Revere leapt onto his horse and went riding through the countryside, shouting, the British are coming, the British are coming. And of course, that alerted all the Minutemen in the area, and we were able to take up arms and meet the British Army at the fields around Lexington and Concord. And while we were not able to defeat the British in that battle, we were able to push them back and harry them all the way back to Boston. And of course, it's, you know, the shot fired around the world. These, these small colonies are taking on the big bully on the planet, you know, the undefeatable British army. And it's a feel-good story from our founding. And of course, like pretty much everything else in history, it is subject to spin and myth and folklore, and it's been built up over the years. Now, of course, there is a kernel of truth, as is with most things, but the story that we know is not the story that actually happened. And if you do a little digging, and I have done that little bit of digging to bring you one of my half-assed history lessons, I would like to go over with you what actually happened and why we all know Paul Revere's name, and it's not for the reasons that I just said. To really understand what happened that night, we've got to go back several years into the past. Now, We were a British colony, and Britain was charged with protecting the colonies, and there were British troops stationed in the American colonies for years. But the people in the colonies were also expected to take up arms and defend their town and the colonies themselves when the need arised. Every able-bodied man was considered to be part of the militia and was expected to be able to fight if they needed to. Now, this system of the Minutemen, I don't know that it was called that at this time, had been in place from before the French-Indian War, and it was used quite a bit during the French and Indian War. 
That's how the men of the militia were able to work on their farms, but still know when it was time to go to a battle, there was something going on and they needed to grab their rifle and, and get their butts over to where they were mustering. In fact, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride was not the first time the Minutemen had been used in response to British activity in the colonies. On September the 1st, 1774, Thomas Gage, the royal appointed governor of Massachusetts, sent troops to collect arms and powder out of the powder house outside of Boston. The reason he was doing this is because this came at a time when British Parliament had decided that they needed to disarm the colonists because they were really starting to get the idea that the colonies might revolt. I said before that the colonists were expected to be part of the militia, so most every town had a powder magazine, muskets, musket balls, all the stuff that the colonists would need to arm themselves if they were called up into active duty. The British also wanted to disarm the people, so they were kind of walking a fine line. They didn't want the colonists to be able to fight against the British, but they also needed the colonists to be able to fight with the British if if the French did something or if there was a major Indian incursion. So they were kind of walking a fine line, but this is actually the point in their history that prompted the founders to put in the Second Amendment into the Constitution because the government of Britain had tried to disarm the colonists so that they could not revolt against them. And this stuff in the modern times makes a little more sense when you know the story behind this stuff. But, you know, these people had went through a period where the ruling government was actually trying to repress them by taking their arms away. And that's why they felt like that was very important to make that a right in the Constitution. That's part of the reason I think we don't teach history anymore, so you won't understand why these things came about. And it's easier, if you don't understand something, it's easier to label something as insane and unnecessary. But on September the 1st, Thomas Gage sent troops to collect the arms and the powder out of this powder house. Now, there were a lot of rumors flying around that there had been bloodshed, and there may even have been an incident or two. I didn't see anything that actually substantiated that. But there had been riots. The, the British government was running a campaign of collecting the firearms, sort of like a modern-day gun buyback. And there had been a couple of riots at these events when they had a station set up in towns where people could bring their firearms in and, and turn them over to the British government. But there had been a couple of riots at those firearm stations. So there may have been something that happened that day. But so far as anybody could tell, historian-wise, that was just a rumor. But that rumor was enough to really get people fired up, and this Minutemen system of alerting the militia was set into motion. And a lot of colonists showed up ready to fight the British. It was actually enough men, I never saw any hard numbers on how many actually showed up. But it was enough that a lot of the royal officials and even some of the loyalists in Boston actually fled to the garrison for the British troops because they thought that the revolution was going to start right then and there. And while they had a really good turnout on that, it was sort of chaotic. You know, people were straggling in over a couple of days. And there was a concerted effort following the powder house alarm to really streamline and make the Minutemen alert system a little more regimented. And that's where Paul Revere comes into this story. Because in 1774, he was actually employed as a message writer for both the Boston Committee of Correspondence and the Massachusetts Committee of Safety. He actually 
was employed in that position from 1774 through 1775 to the beginning of the Revolutionary War and his involvement on the Midnight Ride. And this was just sort of an early version of the Pony Express. Paul Revere would carry messages and documents, uh, sometimes as far away as New York and Philadelphia. But he would take these messages and you know, just ride out and deliver them where they needed to be. And that's how we became part of this Minutemen alert system uh, that we see on the night of the Midnight Ride. If you read the poem, it always almost sounds like Paul Revere and Robert Newman were just you know, two rogue agents, and they had this great idea, and it saved our country. But that's really not how it happened. There was a, a very clear system in place, and Paul Revere was employed by the committees that oversaw this system of alerting the militia to danger. Now, I've also got two other little kind of nitpicky things I want to get out of the way before we really delve into anything bigger than this. Uh, number one, we don't know that it was Robert Newman that hung the lanterns in the Old North Church. Um, actually, it, at the time, it was just called Christ Church, but it did sit in North Boston. And over time, it's become known as the Old North Church. But at the time, it was just called Christ Church, and it was in Boston. Now, Robert Newman is the most likely candidate to have hung the lanterns, but we really don't have any idea who it was that put the lanterns in the church. Uh, Robert Newman, again, he's the accepted person. That's whose name you're going to see in every history book. But the fact of the matter is, is it could have been somebody else. We simply don't know. And another thing that I want to clear up, you know, we always hear, you know, one if by land, two if by sea. Uh, this was not British warships coming from England to invade. you got to remember, we were a British colony. The troops were already here. They were garrisoned in Boston. What they were doing was instead of, there was two ways out of Boston. You could either travel north by land, and it was called the Boston Neck. It, Boston was almost an island at this time. There was just a very narrow causeway that connected it to the mainland. You could either march up the neck or you could take boats across the Charles River to Cambridge. And that's what the British were doing. We say two if by sea, but what they're saying is they're crossing the river by boat and they're going to land in Boston. Or I'm sorry, Cambridge. So when the lanterns were hung in the church, what that person was saying is, you know, the troops are mustering on the river's edge. They're getting ready to load into boats and cross the river. That is the shortest route that cut several miles off of the trip to Lexington and Concord. I'm sure that's why the British did it. That saved them a couple of miles of marching, and it was the quicker route to where they were going. Interestingly enough, that is the route that Paul Revere took as well. Now, we have, you know, the imagery is always him jumping onto a horse and taking off when he saw the lanterns. That's not at all what happened. Paul Revere went to the Charles River, where he met two friends that were members of the Sons of Liberty that had a rowboat. And they took him across the Charles River, and he landed in Cambridge as well. There's actually a plaque where he made landfall to begin his ride this is something that i find very interesting usually gets left out there was a british warship the hms somerset anchored in the charles river now it was there to guard boston and to monitor traffic across the river again you know the british government really felt like there was some trouble brewing over in the colonies and they were you know they weren't on high alert at this point but they were they were suspicious that there was a lot of stuff going on so that boat was there to monitor traffic going across the river. Now, this was at nighttime. Obviously, in 1775, there were not searchlights or street lamps or anything like that. Not, not that we would associate with a lot of light. So slipping past that boat was not a big issue as far as being spotted. What was an issue was 
the oars on these rowboats at the time, they made a lot of noise. You know, the hinges for these oars, they were all handmade out of iron. There was a lot of slack and everything. And of course, when you're rowing, you're, you're squeaking, it's clunking, it's rattling. In order to sneak past this warship in the middle of the night, one of the men that owned the rowboat had raided his wife's laundry and gotten two petticoats out of her laundry. They wrapped the hinges of the oars with the petticoats to muffle the sound of them rowing, and that allowed them to slip past the boat without being heard. And that's one of those interesting things that never gets taught in history class. This is one of those stories that makes history come alive. And if they would teach history like you're telling a story, because that's all history is, and it's some of the best stories ever told, people would be more interested in it. And you'd certainly remember more of it once you got out of school. But the fact that we have a country, arguably because of women's underwear, is interesting. And why people don't teach that, I'll never understand. All right, but moving on. Paul Revere lands in Cambridge on the other side of the Charles River. He's ahead of the British troops. He borrows a horse and he rides off into the night. He did not ride through each little town yelling at the top of his lungs that the British are coming. Because, again, the British were already here. We were a British colony. The troops were stationed in Boston. That's where they were coming from. They weren't coming from a, on a boat from England. These were troops that lived in the colonies. And also, you've got to remember, they were British patrols all over the place. Again, the British were suspicious that something was going on, and they weren't just hiding in their forts at night. They had British, British troops out patrolling the countryside. So if Paul Revere had went screaming at the top of his lungs that the British were coming, he would have gotten stopped almost immediately, and somebody would have said, what do you think you're doing? Also, you've got to remember, about 40% of the population at this time were still very much loyal to Britain. You know, you hear the term in history class, I'm sure you remember, the Tories. Those were the people that were still loyal to the British crown and did not want to separate from England. And again, if he had just ridden through the town shouting the top of his lungs, one of those people would have dropped a dime on him in a heartbeat. To further murky the waters on this story, there was no reason for him to ride through the town shouting, the British are coming, because Paul Revere's mission that night was not to alert the militia that the British were coming. His actual mission that night was to go to Lexington to the house that Samuel Adams and John Hancock were laying low in and to alert them that British troops were coming and they believed that they were coming to arrest them. That is why Paul Revere left out of Boston that evening. Again, a colonel of truth, he did stop along the way at predetermined points that were part of this Minutemen alert system and notify the people there that the British were moving troops out of Boston. And once he did that, this alert system went into effect, and those people set out riders. In fact, the estimates I have seen say that there were about 40 riders that actually went out to alert the Minutemen uh, just beyond Paul Revere. Now, I know that's not a very heroic image of him showing up and delivering a message to a checkpoint, but that is actually what happened, and that's actually the way the system had been set up. You know, they had sort of streamlined this all through the French and Indian Wars, and like I say, the, the Powder House incident was a big factor in them making changes to the system and getting it more efficient, better able to alert people. And in fact, it wasn't just riders. Uh, they had church bells that they were ringing in a certain pattern. A couple of places actually had signal cannons that they would fire to alert people in the surrounding farm farmland that they needed to get their gun and get over here. 
It took Paul Revere about an hour and a half to make it from Boston to Lexington to the house where Samuel Adams and John Hancock were hiding. Once he arrived there, he got there about 1230 at night. He delivered his message, uh, let Samuel Adams and John Hancock know that there was a British patrol coming that he believed was there to arrest him. And after having some refreshments and probably a few drinks, uh, Samuel Adams, a man named William Dawes and uh, Dr. Samuel Prescott then decided to travel further on up the road to Concord to check on the stores of powder and muskets and musket balls there. Now, this was not stored in the magazine anymore because the colonials had decided that the British were going to confiscate those items and weapons, and they had actually emptied out that magazine and distributed the powder and the muskets throughout the community, and and all that stuff was hidden. Uh, But Paul Revere and his companions decided to go check to make sure that those arms had been safely hidden away and that there was nothing for the British to confiscate there. After they left the house, they were stopped by a patrol. William Dawes and Samuel Prescott actually managed to escape from the patrol, but Paul Revere was captured and he was held for questioning. Everything I saw just said for some time. We don't know how long he was held, but he actually told the British that he was out trying to warn British patrols that the Minutemen were starting to uh, to gather and that there might be trouble. Now, I've seen some people say, you know, that's kind of a cowardly thing. You know, he, he admitted that because he was he was captured and he was afraid that he was going to get in trouble. You know, I kind of think that he was telling that patrol anything that he could think of that would let them get them to let him go. You know, kind of like you did the last time you got pulled over for speeding. I don't think he was trying to to roll on the revolutionaries at that point. I think he was just trying to talk his way out of being detained. This did mark the end for Paul Revere's involvement in the evening's festivities, though, because one of the officers in that patrol took his horse from him and left him there on the road. And he was just kind of out in the middle of nowhere in between Concord and Lexington. Now, he walked back to Lexington. Uh, He did get there in time to witness a little bit of the combat between the Minutemen and the British regulars. But like I say, that was the end of Paul Revere's involvement in the evening. But this is the point of the story where you have to stop and ask yourself, do you think about what you're thinking about? Because sending out one person to alert all the militia is incredibly inefficient, and he's not going to be able to get to nearly enough people to mount any kind of actual defense. And even taking into consideration that his mission was simply to warn Adams and Hancock that they may be getting arrested that evening, which ironically, we now know that the British were not under any orders to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock. They were simply going to Concord to confiscate the arms in the magazine there. But Paul Revere was not a good person to send on that mission simply because he was very active in the political scene in Boston. He was known to associate with the Sons of Liberty. I don't know if he was actually a member or if he was just very friendly, but he was very publicly known to be sympathetic to their cause, and he was considered something of a rebel rouser by the British officials. And you're sending him out on a very important mission into an area where there are a lot of British patrols, and the chances of him getting captured were pretty high. So would you send him by himself to do that? Because you need to get this warning to Samuel Adams and John Hancock, and you're sending somebody that the British, is they're going to have him on, his, on their radar. 
Well, the simple answer is, is they did not send Paul Revere out by himself. Have you ever heard of the midnight ride of William Dawes? Remember that name? He left the house with Samuel Prescott and Paul Revere going to Concord. He was selected to go by a different route with the exact same mission as Paul Revere. Now, the reason that he was going on a different route is I told you that Boston was connected with the, to the mainland by just a little causeway called the Neck. Well, the British had a checkpoint there. Now, William Dawes was the perfect person to send along this route because, number one, he had never publicly stated whether he was for uh, the revolutionaries or if he was a loyalist. He was just very low-key, a local, well-known businessman, and his business was he was a tanner. Now, this is also important because this business took him out of Boston very regularly. And because he would travel across the neck through the British checkpoint there, those soldiers were used to seeing him come in and out of Boston. He knew them all. He was friendly with them. Him leaving Boston would not raise anybody's eyebrows, and the chances of him getting questioned as to why he was leaving Boston were practically zero. So William Dawes was selected, and I'm sure a big part of this is that he was willing to go, but William Dawes was selected to go by land to Lexington to warn Adams and Hancock. Now, he did take the longer route. He had to get through the checkpoint, which I'm sure they didn't question him very much, but I'm sure they stopped him and, and said, hello, Mr. Dawes, how are you this evening? You know, something along those lines. But it was a longer route. He arrived at the house about a half hour after Paul Revere did. Now, you'll remember that once they left the house and continued on to Concord, they were intercepted by a British patrol at which Paul Revere was detained for questioning. The reason Samuel and Dawes was not questioned is because they both jumped their horses over a low wall and rode into the woods and separated. Dr. Samuel got away scot-free. Uh, nobody chased after him, but they were two British soldiers on horseback that chased after William Dawes. Now, this is where William Dawes showed why he was a good choice for this mission, because apparently William Dawes was very quick on his feet, uh, had a good mind, obviously courageous. You'd, ha you'd have to be a little bit courageous to take the mission on in the first place. But William Dawes knew that he had been riding his horse for about two hours at that point, and he knew that he could not outrun the British soldiers on their fresh horses. So as he was riding through the countryside being chased by these two British soldiers, he came on to a, he came on to a farmland. And he, he rode up to the barn, and when he arrived at the barn, he reined his horse in, and he shouted, I've got two for you, boys. Now, the British heard him do this, and they assumed that he had led them into some sort of ambush, or at the very least, there were colonists there that could, could help fight them off. So when they heard him yell this out, the two British soldiers that were chasing him turned around and went back and rejoined the patrol. Now, William Dawes has no idea if there's anybody at that farm. There's probably at that time of night, there's almost certainly nobody in the barn. This was just a trick that he played, just a little impromptu idea to try to get these guys off his back, and it worked great. The only problem with his plan is when he reined in the horse, apparently he's not the best horseman in the world. When the horse reared up, he fell off the horse and injured his leg, and the horse ran off into the woods. So just like Paul Revere, William Dawes ended that night walking down the road on foot, and uh, that was the end of his, his participation in this, these historic events. Now, why does everybody in this country know the name of Paul Revere and not one of you had ever heard of William Dawes until just now? Well, it's in part because Paul Revere did a 
pretty good amount of self-promotion following the revolution. Now, you could argue that he deserves it. Um, he deserves to be remembered in history. You know, and I think we can all agree that his role on that evening was conflated and twisted and kind of changed around to fit a narrative. But by and large, Paul Revere did everything that night that we remember him for. It did not happen exactly the way you've been taught, but he did do everything that we have always been told that he did, uh, you know, pretty much minus the shouting the British are coming. He never said that. By his own admission in his writing, he never said that. But the name William Dawes has been all but completely lost to history. And this is due to a couple of things. Number one, like I say, even leading up to the revolution, he was very low-key. You know, obviously, he was sympathetic to the revolutionaries in the in the town of Boston, but he never publicly declared one way or the other. He played everything as close to the vest as he could, and he continued this later into his life. He he never did any writings about his his activities of that evening. I don't believe he ever published any memoirs or anything. And William Dawes's name has been so lost to history that even in death, he's kind of disrespected. William Dawes has a grave marker at the King's Chapel burying ground. It's on Tremont Street in Boston. He is probably almost certainly not actually buried there. Most historians believe that he is buried in a family plot, uh, his first wife's family plot in Forest Hill Cemetery in Jamaica Plains. So we're not even sure where the hell this guy's buried. But one of the most important reasons that we all revere Paul Revere and we have no idea who William Dawes is, is because of you know something just so quirky and simple that it's a shame that somebody that put themselves on the line like that for this country. And you know, you could argue that William Dawes had the harder task. He was traveling much further distance, and therefore he had left himself up open to more opportunity to be captured by British patrols. And the reason that we don't know his name is very simple. If you'll remember the opening lines of the Longfellow poem, Gather my children and you will hear about the midnight ride of Paul Revere. The biggest reason you and I had never heard of William Dawes until today is because Dawes does not rhyme with here. And it's sad to say, ladies and gentlemen, but something as simple as that can be the difference between you being remembered as a hero of the revolution and just some guy that died in Boston 200 years ago. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is about all I've got for you today. Uh, One more time, thank you so much for your patience. I hope you enjoyed this show and I hope it was worth the wait. If you did enjoy the show, please leave me a like and a comment, and of course a subscription would be greatly appreciated. You can leave me a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com, or you can go to the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys. I hope you've had a good week. I'm sorry, weekend, and I hope you enjoy your work week. I will talk again very soon. I'm not going to put a time frame on it, but certainly it's not going to be as long as it has been. Thank you very much once again, guys. Thank you for sitting with me this long, and I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much.